Welcome to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Our program is designed to offer solutions to those individuals with exceptional needs, plus families, professionals, and educators. Dr. Sean and his guests will share ideas that you can begin using immediately in order to promote a harmonious relationship and move forward. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sean Surface. Well, good morning, Voice America listeners, and welcome back to the show. Uh, a couple weeks back, we began a discussion in regards to the history of special education and and a lot of the discriminatory uh, events that have occurred amongst for our disabled people or against our disabled people and how we went about managing to put together laws simultaneously during the civil rights movement that assisted a lot of special ed folk. Uh, We have to realize that for hundreds of years, people with disabilities were not treated in any fashion uh, equal to their non-disabled peers. Uh, Very few were allowed to live in community. Very few uh, were accepted into uh, any uh, family or culture. Um, And even when the family did accept the individual, there was a high likelihood that that person would be taken from the family. Uh, I have a personal story in regards to that. Um, my great-grandmother and grandfather were living in Ohio, in Cleveland, and they decided to move to California. And they were both, uh, I think my grandfather was 39 and my great-grandmother was 38. And they had three kids, two daughters and a son, excuse me, four kids, three daughters and a son, And um, so they packed up their things and they had it all shipped out to California. And they were not rich people. They were just surviving. And this is the, let's see, 19, end of the 1920s, beginning of the 1930s, somewhere in there. And uh, so they, the community, the neighborhood or whatever, threw them a going-away party. And so they're eating and people are coming over and they're dancing. And my great-grandfather was dancing and having a good time. And apparently he sat down to take a rest and, and died and died at his own going-away party. And I even have a newspaper clipping somewhere here that says, man dies at his own going away party. Very, very sad. So my great-grandmother loses her husband. My grandmother loses her father. So they still need to move because all their things are in California. Their, Their family is in California. So they continue to, they have the funeral and they continue to 
pack up to move. Uh, a knock comes on the door, and uh, it's the local health service with uh, a policeman. And he says to my grandmother, Mrs. Itzkowitz, we're so sorry, but we have heard that your, um, your husband passed away, and our condolences to you. She said thank you, and her English was pretty poor. Uh, she was from Poland. Uh, she didn't have, excuse me, she was from Russia. Her husband was from Poland. She was from Russia, and she didn't have a lot of English yet. She mostly spoke Yiddish, to tell you the truth. And so she said yes, that he, he had died and that they were moving. And she said, well, don't you have four kids? And my great-grandmother said yes. And one of my great-grandmother's son was born, uh, I guess they used forceps, they pulled him out, they kind of smushed the head, and it caused some mental retardation, now called intellectual disability. Well, she said, yes, you know, I, I we're, we're moving and everybody's going. And she, they said, well, including your son? And she said, yeah, uh, of course. Well, you can't take care of your son. He, you know, they didn't say disabled. They probably said he's an imbecile, which was the word that they used at the time. You can't take him with you. You can't support an imbecile. And she said, well, of course I can. He's the, and I think he was 13 at that point. So he was already well established into the family. And it sounds like he had like a mild level of a disability uh, maybe wasn't so good in school and maybe wasn't as great taking care of himself but he certainly wasn't moderately to profoundly delayed requiring a pervasive level of support so long story short uh, the government took my who would have been my great great uncle and oh I guess just my great uncle and put him in an institution. And he lived out his days in that institution. Um, apparently, so like in 19, it was probably about 1995. And I wanted to find out where he was. So I used the, the last name Itzkowitz and I contacted several uh, I want to say asylums but institutions and finally did find the institution that he was in and he had passed away in 1993 and he was well into his 70s and they said he was the nicest guy and was, you know, their, one of their highest functioning individuals. But my grandmother never, my grandmother or her sisters or my great grandmother never saw him again. Now that also has to do with them and the choices that they made and maybe there was shame or I don't know. What I do know is that this guy lived out his whole life without any family, without any siblings around, um, very likely could have met somebody 
got married. Yeah, I don't know what his future could have been, but his future ended up with a period at the end of the sentence when he was 13 because of having the disability. You know, historically, children with disabilities have received unequal public education and and just services and, and acceptance. So in some way, my great-grandmother, I guess, was shamed by her son. And again, that's on the family and on them. But that was, you know, so culturally normal. A very, very good friend of mine uh, has a... Uh, brother-in-law who had a daughter with Down syndrome in the 1960s and maybe like it might even be the late 1950s and um, she lived at home until she was about three three or four and then she was you know placed into a an institution and and I've met her several times and She's a very high-functioning girl, but she could never live outside of the institution now because she's just so institutionalized. So, you know, it during and shortly after the civil rights movement of the 1950s, many parents and advocates of children with disabilities said enough is enough. You know, we need to have equal protection for our kids, and they deserve to be able to go to school also, and... There was something that was called the Wyatt Stickney Act. And what the Wyatt Stickney Act said was that, and this was like in the 1930s, it said, you know, no longer can you just institutionalize somebody. You need to uh, educate them, help train, so that that individual could come out as a productive human being with something to do in life besides twiddle their thumbs or stare at a wall. A guy named Barton Blatt, who was a professor at Ohio State, and I talked about him the last time, he went into one of these institutions and he took pictures and he wrote poems about the pictures and he called the book Christmas in Purgatory. It's it's difficult to get on Amazon because, frankly, I bought so many of the copies that... You know, if you ever want a copy or to see it, I can maybe scan it and send it to you. Um, That's probably breaking some kind of copyright law, so I don't know. But in any case, he took photos of of people in these institutions and how they were treated. And when those pictures got out, Uh, The world saw for the first time that this was no longer, it wasn't cool the way people were being treated. It was inhumane. Man's inhumanity to man was the title of one of the photos. And it just shows this kid sitting on a bench curled over with blood underneath him and just in a terrible state. uh, Bound, his hands bound so maybe he won't hurt himself or hit himself or hit somebody else. I don't know, but... Man's inhumanity to man. So family said, okay, enough is enough. We are going to start now pursuing laws that give our kids some equity in regards to education. And the early cases discussed in this last time 
including Brown versus the Board of Education and several other cases that I discussed, the Mills case, the uh, Park case in Pennsylvania, these all created eventually and led to what was called FAPE, a free and appropriate public education. And now everybody has a free public education. So why is this one called FAPE or F-A-P-E or free and appropriate public education? Why? Because it means the appropriate part means individualized. And that's the difference between a child in general education and a child needing special education supports. By the way, a child that needs special education supports is exactly that. They are still a general education student. They just also get special education supports. Now, that is something that is new, and I'll talk about after our, we have a break coming up here in a minute, and so I'll talk about that afterwards. But it really was uh, – it was in 1970-something. Actually, right before the Brown versus Board – of education decision, uh, Chief Warren, Chief Justice Earl Warren stated, in these days, it's doubtful that any child may be reasonably expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunity of an education. And such opportunity where the state is undertaken to provide it is the right that must be available to all equal terms, on all equal terms. So what did it say? It said that everybody deserves an education. Hell, 400 years before that, John Locke said that everybody was born tabla rasa, blank slate, ready to learn. So what allowed our kids with disabilities to get some equity? Well, laws that were put into place. And when we get back, I'll be discussing those. So go and get yourself something to drink. If you're listening to this in the morning, get a cup of coffee. If you're listening to this at night, get a glass of wine. If you've had a bad day, get two glasses of wine. We'll see you when you get back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be, and our goal is to assist your family in having a supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. 
Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seanservice at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back, and we're talking about the history of special education, but also, you know, the discrimination and, and racism that was involved. And it was interesting, I was looking through my notes, and there was a law that was written in 1893, 1893, and it said this was in Massachusetts, and it said it upheld the expulsion of a student solely due to poor academic ability on the ground that the student was too weak-minded to profit from education. Now, I didn't say that it was a positive, but that's the first time that you really saw a law put into place that said it's okay to kick them out of school if they can't do well because they're too weak-minded to do it. It didn't say anything, though, about providing them the service. And there was a secondary law that came into place in 1919. And that was Beadle versus the Board of Antigua, Board of Education of Antigua. And it basically said that the sight of the disabled kid was so overwhelmingly bad and so challenging for the other non-disabled kids that it would freak them out and it would create a quote-unquote depressing and nauseating effect. Unfortunately, laws were passed in England also that um, that we looked at, and uh, and even our our chief justice, uh, Justice Oliver. I don't know if he was chief justice. I think he was just a justice. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in Buck versus Bell. Uh, that law said. that involuntary sterilization was better for the world instead of waiting for the degenerate um, offspring for to commit crime or to starve from their imbecility or from society that can prevent, that society must prevent this thing from happening. So they were trying to do the good thing. And that's kind of how a lot of things are always... Uh, uh, covered up that they're really doing a good thing. So Brown versus the Board of Education came along and said, okay, now you can't just keep a kid out of school. And Brown versus the Board of Education determined that the Separate but equal doctrine, which was actually established by the Plessy decision, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, violated the law, and it violated the 14th Amendment, which said equal rights under the law. 
So Brown versus the Board of Education was really the first time that it was even thought of for a minute. This is 1954, even thought of for a minute that children with disabilities, extending Brown to children with disabilities. And that's what the Park case did. It specifically addressed the issue of education for children with disabilities. You know, at this point now, unlike today, you know, there were millions of children with disabilities that were denied enrollment in public education. They were insufficiently given public education programs. You know, the things that are out there now supporting our kids, whether it's insurance companies, whether it's a local regional centers provided by the Department of Developmental Services, whether, whether it's the actual Department of Developmental Services or a school district, these things had never been uh, uh, in place before. These things weren't put into place until the Lanterman Act of the late 1960s and the uh, um, special ed laws that came into place in, in 1975, basically. So it was the Park case and the Mills case that, and the Park case, are, well, the Park case and the Mills case that really started to formulate what special education law would be. And the Park case stated that there would be no more exclusions for quote-unquote retarded children. Uh, the first part of that said that the Board of Education would provide education to any child that a psychologist would even determine is uneducatable and untrainable. The second section allowed the state to indefinitely postpone the admission to public school. And I'm sorry, I misread that. With the Park case, this was given reasoning, reasons to exclude kids, further exclude kids from special education, basically postponing their education based on a some doctor's uh, uh, decision that they wouldn't benefit. It's a no child school age who is mentally retarded or thought of by a school official or by his parents to be mentally retarded shall be subjected to the change of educational status without first being accorded notice and the opportunity of due process. So you actually saw that at the end of the Park case, they started to lay the groundwork for what would be called an IEP meeting. Because the IEP meeting, you had to sit and discuss a kid and decide how they could best be uh, uh, served and if they could benefit from training and from education. And in the Mills case, you might have a developmentally disabled kid, but with like a behavioral problem or a mental problem. And, and they, those kids were really excluded because they didn't want to deal with any behavioral issues. They certainly did not want to uh, have that around the typical kids that they were trying to educate. 
and therefore those kids are being thrown out of school all the time. And those are the kids, frankly, that I work with consistently are kids that have behavioral difficulty. And what do we find nine out of ten times is that the behavioral difficulty is due to communication problems, especially with our developmentally disabled individuals. Okay, but that wasn't the way it was looked at then. The way it was looked at then was that this was impeding on the education of other kids. Therefore, we needed to get rid of them. You know, it wasn't until 1975 that there was a uh, decision or excuse me, a law that was created, PL 94-142, which was the first special education law that said, hey, you know what? Everybody's going to get some equal rights here. Everybody's going to be able to get educated. And we're going to be able to educate these kids with disabilities between the ages of 6 and 18. These things were later expanded in 1997. It was expanded to 3 to 21. In 2004, it was expanded to birth through the 21st year, or to 22. So, again, very different things. A lot of kids require uh, special supports in school. And so those laws had to be passed to make sure that kids were getting what they needed. The first one was the Rehabilitation Act 504, which allowed for accommodations to take place. So maybe you had a kid who was um, slightly visually impaired and needed larger print. Okay, so larger print textbooks would be utilized for that student. But in the Rowley case, you actually had a little girl who was deaf and she would do just fine in school. But she needed her teacher to wear a microphone, which is called an FM transmitter. And the law needed to be passed in order to get the school district to do this thing. And, and by doing this thing, this was the appropriate part of fate for her. This was the individualized part. Her name was Amy Rowley. And again, she was a deaf child, but she was doing fine academically. Cognitively, she was fine. Okay, but what could happen by... Uh, not allowing her to have the FM trainer is she would not get the education she needs. You know, for years there's been discrimination of people of color and people with disabilities uh, not giving them education and then calling them a dumber group or a not as smart as group. And this is the whole eugenics thing that, oh no, you don't want to mix with those people because then you're going to be dumber. Well, we weren't giving education to people of color, and we weren't giving education to people with disabilities. Therefore, they weren't dumber. They were just uneducated. And there were plenty of theorists out there, including a guy named Watson up at Berkeley, that his whole thing was that certain races and certain people were just born lesser, and we should get rid of them. Happy to say he's gone. And we have not taken on that uh, philosophy. And instead, parents fought very hard to get the appropriate types of education for their kids, including in the Rowley case, where it was very important for that kid to get just that little tool 
so that the kid could then go on, do what she needed to do in school, and be successful. And when we have a break coming, when we're back from that, we'll further discuss how school districts are now responsible due to certain laws to implement certain programs, certain supports, and to watch how they implement certain programs. So we'll be back in a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, well, welcome back, and we're talking about the history of special education and specifically some, you know, discriminatory types of things that uh, people with disabilities have gone through for uh, a mighty, mighty long time. And we only saw in the 1960s a beginning change, because still in the 1950s there were laws being created to stop people with disabilities from uh, getting the education they needed. And one of the last laws or one of the last things we were talking about before the break was the Rowley case. And the Rowley decision said that this child who was deaf but normal cognitive ability 
and could do just fine academically as long as she had the right hearing aid in place and sometimes she needed an interpreter, so a, a signing interpreter, that those things would have to be implemented in order for her to have equal uh, protection under the law. Now, at the same time, it was like, okay, well, wait a minute. You know, the parents know our kids the best. The parents are the ones that really understand uh, their child. Therefore, shouldn't they be involved in some way? And that's what we call the procedural safeguards. It's the the state is compi- com- compelled to put in procedural safeguards, and the child's individual education program is how uh, that procedural safeguard is created. So by creating a legal contract between the child and the school district, which is called the IEP or the Individual Education Program, the court held that under the special education law, it became the, the evidence that demonstrated that the child needed certain programs in place. Now, there was another case, and that was the Honig case, and this further looked at the idea of procedural safeguards, like how you go about doing something before you do it. Like, you don't just put this deaf girl in a class and let her not be able to hear anything. You put her in the classroom that's appropriate with the appropriate equipment. We see that so clearly now, but remember that there's the discriminatory belief that the person is lesser. Therefore, why should we do so much for them? We don't do so much for the gifted. And that was a big argument. That during that time period, it became an argument that if we keep helping the, 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 the lesser, we're going to dumb down the smarter because we're not going to give them what they need. Again, that is eugenics. It's a form of discrimination and racism in our genetic world. It's a form of looking at people in a way that's discriminatory. So what Honig versus Doe looked at was like, okay, we've got a kid who's got a disability, but he's also got a lot of problems. And he's disruptive, he's even dangerous. What happens to him? Now, the child in this case, John Doe, was a 17-year-old boy that had significant challenges in his ability to control his behavior, his impulsivity, and his anger towards others. His grandparents argued that a child with a disability who dis, who is disciplined based on actions arising out of the child's disability may not be subjected to school disciplinary actions, including expulsion, without the right to due process under IDEA or the special education law. The court emphasized that the importance of the school district following procedural safeguards contained within IDEA, which includes the right to due process of the IEP. So from that decision what was created was known as the 10-day rule. And the 10-day rule allows a child or a school to only suspend a child for up to 10 days without parental consent or court intervention. Moreover, 
that the court had to be involved after those 10 days and a student could not be removed from school if their appropriate if their behavior was inappropriate but due to their disability so the Hanuk decision gave rise to all the behaviorists that are out there now all the BCBAs board certified behavior analysts that are working both in homes and in schools and what came of it was called a functional behavioral assessment. And that functional behavioral assessment, or an FBA, was the first time we really looked at all the variables that were involved in a child's uh, behavioral issues and challenges. And there was a case in California where a child was acting up in a bus, and uh, there happened to be a rug in the back of the bus. And so they literally rolled out the rug, put the kid down on the rug and rolled it up around him to hold him while until he got home because he was acting out. Well, he suffocated and by the time he got home. And so Teresa Hughes, who was a state senator uh, came up with a law that said that no aversives could be used anymore towards behaviorally oriented challenges. In, uh, in other words, if there were behaviors that were getting into the place of implementation of the child's education program, that IEP, we needed to examine it through assessment and intervention. And so that Hughes bill was in place from about 1994 to about 2010, maybe a little bit longer. And it was not reauthorized due to financial reasons because the school districts were, excuse me, the state was held responsible to pay for the functional behavioral assessments. But due to the Honig case, the school districts are still responsible to pay for the uh, uh, functional behavioral assessments that come up. So, I'm just looking something up for a second. Finally, there was a case, well, not finally, but there was a case called the Timothy W. versus Rochester, New Hampshire School District. And this kid was profoundly delayed. He had multiple disabilities that were extremely severe, and he was really being excluded from school because, like, they just didn't know what to do. And, like, well, what do we do with the student who has this many issues? And that Timothy versus New Hampshire case uh, put into place very specific supports and assessments for the severely handicapped so that they would have a productive school program. And I worked on many of those uh, cases where the child had severe handicapping conditions and we were able to fully assess all areas and make sure that they had really good intervention plans in place. But see, this is something that, you know, I'm talking the 1990s is when I was doing that. Okay, it was not until then that kids with severe handicapping conditions were really treated fairly. One of the 
issues that comes into play is that there was a double standard for people of color and people with, who also might have come from other languages and how white children were treated. And so there was a big issue, you know, first of all, with Brown versus the Board of Education, it was like, okay, you know, blacks and whites, African-Americans and whites would be educated in the same place based on the same uh, needs. Uh, and they ruled against the separate but equal. Because it really couldn't provide the same equal education. Well, that was carried over, of course, into our world of disability, but it didn't happen until much later, 20 years later. And Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 stated that no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from the participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to the discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Now, this was the key. And Thurgood Marshall realized this also. He's like, the key to making this happen is it has to be federal. It has to be on a national basis. It can't be a state decision. So, okay, maybe the states through the 15th Amendment, I think it is, provide the schools but and make the decision around the schools. But if they're going to take federal money, they have to follow federal guidelines and federal law. And so Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 64 said, hey, if you're receiving financial assistance from the feds, you can't discriminate on the basis of color or race or national origin. And so that meant, hey, you know what? It is actually time to start looking at not just the fact that people have a disability, but it's also like, are they able to gain from the education they're being given? Do they speak the language? Are they being assessed in the appropriate way? Are they being, is their assessment only in English and they don't speak any English, therefore they're coming out in a way that appears as if they're extremely disabled in some way, but really it's a language issue. So when we get back from our, our last break, I'm gonna continue to discuss some of the very specific uh, laws that were put into place to assist people of different races and color to uh, benefit from special education. So we'll be back in a moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. 
Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back, and we're talking about special education law, and specifically, uh, or yeah, specifically more about how different races, different people of different color, have, and on top of it, having a disability, have dealt with even more discrimination. This is like a double whammy. So. I, the last thing I said before the break was that we were talking about Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and that basically said that if you know if you as a school are getting financial support from uh, the federal government, you need to do what the federal government's laws state. And even though the Fifteenth Amendment says that the school districts are run by the state, Civil Rights Act is a federal law. And, and this part of the federal law said that, hey, if you're getting any money, you have to follow our statute. So that was in 64. In 1970, the, um, it was called the May 20, 25th, 1970 man, Memorandum, and it was prepared by the Department of Education and to clarify the, what the requirements were. And it specifically said that where an inability to speak and understand the English language excludes national origin minority children from the effective participation in educational programs offered by a school district, the school district must take affirmative steps to rectify the language efficiency in order to open up its instructional program to these students. It states that school districts must not assign national origin minority groups students to classes for mentally retarded on the basis of a criteria which essentially measures or evaluates their English language skills and requires the school districts to notify parents in a language that they understand of school activities that they are called to the attention of other, to the, I'm sorry, 
it does also require them to notify parents in their own language of any other school activities that any other parent would be notified of. So it's not necessarily about special education only. Now, you may not realize this, but here in California, in Riverside County, between 1920 and 19, pretty much 1970, uh, if you had a Spanish surname, you automatically went into what was called an EMR class, Educatably Mentally Retarded class, because you didn't speak the language, so you were educated in a way of that somebody without language would be educated. There's a woman by the name of Jane Mercer who was out at um, UC Riverside, my alma mater. In the 1970s, she created a test called SAMPA, the System of Multipluristic Assessment. And what it looked at was like, okay, don't just look at this kid's one aspect of them. You know, don't just look at their language skills and measure everything based on that. Understand that they are multifaceted individuals. So you got to look at what they do at home, what they do at school, what they do academically, what they do on their own to take care of themselves, what they're doing to take care of others. Because there was this thing called the six-hour mental retardation. And it meant that while you were at school, you were mentally retarded. But when you went home, you were fine. And that's because you weren't being taught in your, your own language. And we were also assessing kids in languages that were not their own. Therefore, of course, they weren't doing well. You go and try and go to China and get assessed, unless you speak Chinese, and see what your outcomes are. I bet you you're not going to do too well. So Diana versus the California State Board of Education actually was a court in which nine Mexican-American children use Spanish as their primary language. These students were placed in special education after receiving assessments in English. The court ruled that the school district in California were to test children in their primary language and to use nonverbal tests as well uh, to uh, support their data. So that's what we do now. We either use a, either straight up do a test in their language, use an interpreter while you're testing, or use a nonverbal method. But of course, the most accurate would be done in the language of their uh, of their or national origin by the assessor. But Diana was the first case to even look at that at all. Then we had the the Lau versus Nichols case, and that was in San Francisco in 1974. And it said, "Hey, these kids are from Chinese background, and again, their uh, education—they're not able to participate in their education. They don't understand." The English, therefore, uh, it's not fair to give them these textbooks and things that they don't understand. So, it basically said that they would be provided in their, their own language information. Now, one of the there, there are several different laws that came into place, but I want to talk about one because I've only got about four minutes until we're done for the day. And so there was a test uh, or a case in 1984. It was about 10 years before I became a school psychologist. And it was an African-American boy, male, who 
uh, was given an IQ test and then was placed into a classroom for mentally retarded children. And it was found that the test had information in it that he was questioned about that he had never been exposed to before. Even things like, where, what do you do when you run out of wood for the fireplace? Well, there was no fireplace. So there was no way to understand that. So what the Larry P. case said was that no longer would IQ, not just because of the fireplace question, but because of multiple problems with their IQ tests, and specifically for placement in mental classes for children with mental retardation, would no longer be used with African Americans because it was culturally biased, which was true. Unfortunately, what came of that is all of a sudden you saw a huge number of kids that were not placed in programs for mentally retarded children or intellectually disabled children, but rather placed in programs for emotionally disturbed, where you didn't require the IQ examination as much. You could determine that there was average intellectual ability in other ways. And so you've got a lot of kids, a lot of African-American males primarily now in programs for emotionally disturbed, behaviorally disordered, which they weren't necessarily placed in before and which may not be appropriate now because they actually do show intellectual disability and they're not being assessed correctly. So the Crawford case, which came a lot around maybe seven, eight years later by an African-American mom said, hey, look, I need my kid tested appropriately. And I believe that this test is not biased against him and that will help him. And so there are laws in place to make sure that the appropriate types of assessment and the appropriate types of supports are put into place so that we don't have an overrepresentation of any particular race, color, or national origin in uh, any special education programs. So, along with the civil rights cases came the cases that I've been talking about, starting with the board. Brown versus the Board of Education, going all the way up through this Larry P. case in 1984. And there have been new cases since then. We continue to work on discriminatory behavior within special education programs. And right now, with COVID, we have to make sure that our kids don't fall behind because there's a lot of waivers and things being put out there, including a Senate Bill 98 which says that you don't really have to follow the IEP so much right now. And that's of concern. We need to find new ways that we educate our kids. So with that, we've come to the end of the show. I so appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll be back together again soon. And, and do remember that on Strategies Solutions, taking on the challenge with Dr. Sean, we're about your successes. And we're here to help you with those daily challenges you take on. But I suspect support you and I applaud you for your daily successes. Thank you, blessings, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Be sure to join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.